me okay? All right, go ahead and take your Bibles. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is where we will be today. We're going to pick up, we've been in a series on 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. We're going to pick up right where Pastor Bart left off last week. Um, as you're turning to 1st Thessalonians 4, we're going to close out the chapter today and tell us, uh, I remember when I was, I don't know, a, a kid, probably a young teenager, uh, maybe 13, 14, and I think this actually probably happened more than once in my life, but I was alone in the house, or at least I as far as I knew, I was alone in the house. Didn't know where the rest of my family members were. And for just a split second, a wave of panic came over me because a certain thought had entered my mind. And I thought, oh no, I have been, can anyone guess what the next words were that I thought? I have been left behind. The rapture, the secret rapture, the secret snatching away of Christians before the seven year tribulation has happened. And I was not one of the real Christians, and so I've been left behind. Um, can anyone else relate to this? I'm just... When no one answers their phone, yes. Sometimes I think, like, my phone has been raptured, and I've been left behind. Um, well, I've since come to find out this was definitely not unique to me. Uh, there's actually now a term for this that I just recently learned about that is, like, I guess in mental health circles is, is now a thing called rapture anxiety. And if you've experienced what I experienced, and that's, you've experienced rapture anxiety. Um, now, I, I say all that to say, because we're going to be in a passage in First Thessalonians today where it, it is the primary passage in all of scripture where the doctrine of the rapture is, is taught and has been traditionally taught. There's other passages in, in Luke and in um, Revelation, but this is the main passage. And kind of going back to a guy in the 1800s uh, named John Nelson, uh, who, who lived in the 1800s. He was a, a lawyer who became a Bible teacher. Uh, he's the one who really first popularized this doctrine, this reading of, of our text today, that there would be a, a secret snatching away preceding the tribulation of of Christians, that they would be whisked away. And this became really, this has been the most popular view in popular Western evangelical circles for probably close to 200 years now. And it's had different forms in popular culture, but most recent would be uh, the Left Behind books and movies. I think there were maybe 12 adult books, and I don't know how many young adult books written uh, different movies that were made, first starring Kirk Cameron, then they did a remake with Nicolas Cage. And uh, I will admit that I devoured these books back in the kind of the late 90s, early 2000s, and was really into the, the first uh, generation of Left Behind movies. Didn't actually watch all of the Nick Cage movie, but, um, and I'm embarrassed to admit, I was kind of, I mean, I, I devoured them. I loved them. Um, just a little bit of a forewarning today. Uh, I'm going to push back a little bit on this, this doctrine of a pre-tribulation rapture. I realize that it's going to be a controversial kind of pool to step into. So hopefully um, we're all still loving each other by the end. Um, my hope, though, for real, though, is that this isn't going to be a divisive message, but this is going to be an encouraging message because that is really the heart of Paul in this passage. He's writing literally to encourage the, the believers in Thessalonica. So 
Um, just to catch us up really quick, uh, Paul's been alluding, as Pastor Bart's been preaching through and Gabriel's been preaching through the book, Paul's been alluding to this thing of the second coming of Christ. He's mentioned it in chapter 2, in chapter 3, but now he's going to turn his attention to the coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ at the end of chapter 4. Then next week, Pastor Bart will keep us going in chapter 5. But we're going to see today, kind of the big idea today is the way we have, one of the main ways that we have stable faith in uncertain times, which is really the theme of this whole fall series, having stable faith in uncertain times. One of the main ways we do that is how we think about death as followers of Christ, what we believe about death. And what we believe about death is completely wrapped up in the return of Christ. And that is how we have stable faith in uncertain times. So let's read our, our text together. First Thessalonians 4, we're going to start in 13, go to the end of the chapter. Paul writes, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that means those who have died, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. All right, three things I want to pull from this passage. Three things. First is this. What you believe about death is intensely practical. What you believe about death, your theology about death is not just theoretical. It is intensely practical for here and now. The context here is Paul is writing to help young believers. Remember, they're just, they're very young believers. Um, he's only was there three weeks and they're still very young in their faith. He is writing because he's heard that they have some misunderstandings about what happens to people after they die. Evidently, they were expecting Jesus to return in their lifetime and in the lifetime of their community. But now some time is passing. Loved ones in their community are starting to die. And so they're like, uh-oh, what's going to happen to them? Jesus hasn't come back yet. And we don't know exactly what it is that they're thinking. Um, I think a helpful thing that I've heard from different scholars over the years is whenever you're reading a, a New Testament letter, an, an epistle, is think of it like you're listening to one half of a phone conversation. Okay? You don't know exactly what the people on the other side are saying and thinking, but you can kind of piece it together from the side that you're hearing, the, the side of the, the writers. Um, but my guess is that their, their thoughts are probably something a little bit like this. These are primarily Gentile believers. Okay? They live in a Greco-Roman, really pagan culture, and they're still young in their faith, and they probably have some of the ideas that would be popular in that culture, which, as... N.T. Wright, New Testament scholar, says the belief of that time was the road to the underworld, meaning the road to where they believe the dead people went, the road to the underworld, was one way. He said it was, it was one way. So you went there, you didn't come back, meaning resurrection was not going to happen. 
Not only was resurrection not going to happen, nobody wanted it to happen because they had a view of the body that was really rather low. They saw the body as more of like a prison that death was actually going to be kind of a sweet release where you get out of this cage, this prison, when you go there and you're not coming back. The road to the underworld is one way. And so evidently, my guess is that they're probably bringing in ideas about death from their culture into their belief system, and it was causing them anxiety. And so Paul is writing to them in this situation. Now, we live 21st century West, um, don't have all the same ideas about death in our culture, but our culture does have different ideas about death. And I think it is helpful as we seek to follow Jesus in an increasingly secularizing post-Christian society that we think about and are aware of how does our culture think about death in the West. And uh, so I'm going to just walk briefly through three things that the Western world thinks about death before we get to what Paul is saying we should think as followers of Christ. Uh, First is in the West, we tend to sometimes trivialize death. And here's what I mean by that is I have in mind the doctrine of reincarnation. Now, I'm very aware that that's more of an Eastern, far Eastern idea, but we, we still live in a, even though we're secular, we still live in kind of a um, public shopping spirituality world where there's a million options, right? And you're like, I'm going to take a little bit of this from this belief system. I'm going to take a little bit of that and kind of create and form my, my spirituality, my belief system. And so you definitely have people in the West who would hold to some form of reincarnation. And reincarnation is basically the idea that death is just going to be an event that's going to happen many, many, many times throughout the course of your existence, right? Almost like a cog in a wheel that's just going to keep turning over and over again. So it's not a huge deal because it's going to happen so many times throughout the course of your existence. So it's a, it's a trivializing of, of death. A more common view of death would be to over-prioritize death, number two on here. And here's what I mean by that when I say over-prioritize. It's this idea that death is just, even though we don't want to talk about it, we want to avoid it, it's this all-encompassing, all-crushing thing that when we are confronted with it, it's just we, we, we don't have the resources to withstand the weight of it, and we get crushed underneath it. Um, I always remember a few years ago, I was at a funeral of a, uh, it was a young man who had tragically died, and I had known, I hadn't seen him for years. I'd known him really when he was more of a, a kid. And he had professed faith in Christ as a kid. Um, wasn't ta- I, mean, I wasn't sure where he was for sure spiritually, but over the years it had looked like he had kind of walked away from his profession of faith and had gotten involved with this really kind of dark community of peers and young people. And then learned that he, he tragically, tragically dies. And, but I went to the funeral and it was a large gathering. I got there a little bit late, so I was actually in the foyer, the lobby of the, of the funeral home, but I could hear what was you know, being said in the service. And, and the pastor is, is preaching a very gospel-centered uh, eulogy. But then I, I noticed that there's some young people that come out kind of during the middle of this, this ceremony. And I didn't know who they were, and maybe I was projecting a little bit onto them, but they were kind of dressed in sort of kind of dark goth clothing, and I, I was pretty sure that they were part of this community that this young man had been a part of. And, I mean, the look, like their whole demeanor, their, their appearance, 
was just utter just distraught. And they'd really come out to get a, a smoke break. And so just the utter contrast between hearing this gospel message and then seeing them, they just, they had no resources in and of themselves to withstand the crushing weight of being confronted with, with death. And I don't say that to belittle. None of these are views of me to mock and belittle. Um, it's, it's attempts of people in our society to wrestle with this thing called death. But then in more recent times, I've noticed this, this trend that you know, no one wants to deal with, wants to feel these negative, these really, really negative emotions about death because it's, it's awful, it's crushing. And so there, I've seen there's kind of this trend in more recent times to almost romanticize death a little bit. And I've seen this in different ways. I was reading recently, um, there's these places in different parts of the U.S. called death cafes. I don't know if anyone else has, has seen these. Um, I don't think they're super common, but they are around. And they're just like what they sound like. It's a cafe where you can go and have tea and kind of be in a, a discussion where you kind of discuss your experiences with, with death. Um, and the idea is it's a very, it's a very much a secular environment. Um, you know, people from all faiths or no faith can come and just kind of have a more positive experience or at least neutral experience talking about, about death. Um, tragically, I mean, we, we know that the, the rising rates of, of suicide among young people as there's rising rates of, of, uh, of teenage anxiety and depression. And there's kind of this, I mean, I'm, hear me now, I'm not denying there's a lot of complexity there. I don't want to oversimplify that. But there, there does seem to be sometimes this idea of like death is sort of this sweet release from the, the pressures and the anxieties of life. And I don't say that to belittle that at all. Um, another thing I've seen recently is uh, this, this position of people called death doulas. Um, I was reading recently about that, that similar to like a birth doula, someone you bring in to help uh, you know, you walk through a birth process. A death doula is someone who is, is hired and brought in to help somebody who, is, who knows they're approaching death, and it's to help this individual and their family walk through the experience of death together. And again, it's, these are people that can be hired from someone of any faith background or no faith background to help them have a somewhat more positive or at least neutral experience of death. And so it's almost a, a romanticizing of, of death. Now, in contrast to all of these, um, and these are all honest, I'm saying these are all honest attempts to wrestle with death in our culture. What is the believer's view of death that Paul is teaching here? Well, he says, I don't want you to be misinformed and we don't grieve like those who have no hope. So the implication is this, as believers, we grieve with hope. We grieve with hope. And now notice, this is unlike any of the three views that I just talked about in culture. We don't trivialize death. We don't romanticize death. We don't make it too small of a deal. We don't make it too positive of a deal. We grieve it. We grieve it. And the, the scriptures are full of the language of lament over death. We view it as, a, as an enemy that has invaded God's good world and wreaked havoc. We grieve it, but yet we don't grieve without hope. We grieve with hope. We don't over-prioritize death. We know that there is hope coming. And our example in this as believers is Jesus himself. 
a story that has become very precious to me over the years, and it's a pretty famous story, is John 11, Jesus at the tomb of Lazarus. You remember this, where his dear friend Lazarus has died, and he's going, and Lazarus's two sisters are, are there grieving. Well, Jesus comes, and this is what gets me. Jesus knows he's going to resurrect Lazarus from the dead. He knows he's going to do that very soon. But yet, when Jesus views the, the effect of death, the grieving, he weeps. And then, from what I've read, the, our English translations don't quite get, the, it's hard to translate this word into English. Our, our English Bibles say he was deeply moved in his spirit. But I've heard scholars say, really a better translation of this, the best we can do, is when Jesus sees the effect of death on Lazarus and on those who loved him, Jesus is outraged at death. And there's something comforting about that, that we don't have an unfeeling Savior, an unfeeling God, that he views death as an enemy and he is outraged. He's like, I've come to do war on you, death. He grieved with hope. And so we grieve with hope. What you believe about death is intensely practical. But how can we have this perspective, this attitude as believers? Well, it leads to number two. Our belief about death is based on Christ's return. The reason why we can grieve with hope is because Jesus is coming back. This is the, the primary, this is the bulk of this passage, verses uh, 14 through 17. So I'm going to just kind of quickly walk through four things that I think Paul is saying as he's describing the nature of what it will be like when Christ comes back. So hopefully this will be a little more positive. That first part was heavy, right? This is where we turn to hope. First, so four things. This is all under point two. Taking a, a page out of Pastor Bart's preaching manual. Four points I'm squeezing in under one. Um, all right, first is this. Christ's return brings our resurrection. Christ's return brings our resurrection. Verse 14. Now, this is worded in such a way in the original that if the first part of this sentence is true, that Christ is risen again, then part two of this sentence necessarily follows our resurrection. If Christ has been raised, we will be raised. This is not the only place where Paul says this. He says this in 1 Corinthians 15. Not going to look at that today, but he's making the same point. If Jesus has been raised, we will be raised. From the perspective of the New Testament writers, the final resurrection at the end of the age has already begun. Think about that for a second. From their perspective, when God raised Jesus to life on that first Sunday morning when he caused his buried body to begin breathing again. Things were set in motion. Events were put into motion that cannot be undone. And so Jesus has been raised. We will be raised. That is your hope as believers. That is why Paul could have the confidence that he had. That is why we grieve with hope. Now, um, faithful believers over the last 2,000 years have disagreed a little bit on the, or a lot on the timing of this. Um, like, does the resurrection happen right when Christ returns? Like, it's almost simultaneous. Does it happen 1,000 years later? Um, I'll, I'll say this. Even on our pastoral staff, I would say we probably don't all land on exactly the same place. I would probably lean one way. Gabriel would probably lean another way. Pastor Bart would lean the correct way. So you can go ask him. <laughs> 
But the point is, it's not really that big of a deal. Like you can, you can be not only in the same church, you can be on the same staff laboring together for the gospel. Maybe not totally agree on this, but we, what we all agree on is Jesus has been raised. We will be raised after Christ returns. Christ's return brings our resurrection. Number two, Christ's return is a public declaration of his reign. From all appearances, as best I can tell on this passage, this seems like this is going to be a very public, loud, conspicuous, impossible to ignore thing when Christ comes. Notice that it's with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. These are all loud things. This idea of a, the cry of a command that has a military connotation, kind of like a, a commander on a battlefield calling to his army. Um, of course, I don't think angels are quiet when they cry. Um, the sound of a trumpet. A trumpet is a loud instrument. In the Old Testament, the trumpet blast was often affiliated with a public appearance of Yahweh. Um, uh, a story where we can really picture that visually is Exodus 19 on Mount Sinai. When Israel is at Mount Sinai and uh, Moses goes up on the mountain, he's going up to get the Ten Commandments and the glory of God, the cloud of God's glory has descended on the mountain. Moses is going to go up and then come back down and it says there's this loud trumpet blast as this is happening. So it's a, it's a public appearance of God. And so I think this, this feels like this is not a secret thing, like a secret um, snatching. This feels like a very public, noticeable thing. I picture it kind of like this. Think of like movies that you've seen. Um, I'm picturing Two Towers. I'm picturing uh, Marvel, uh, Avengers Endgame, where there's kind of this climactic battle at the end of the movie between good, the forces of good, the forces of evil, and it's a little unclear of who's going to win. Like it's, it's kind of like uncertain what's going to happen. But then in the last moment, a hero rides in or flies in to save the day. And it becomes very evident very quickly that this new being that has come onto the battle scene is by far the most powerful force, the most powerful being on this battle scene. And so I think the idea is that when Christ comes back, there is gonna be no doubt that Jesus is Lord and he has come back to kick some tail. Christ's return will be a public declaration of his reign. I didn't say it's going to be the beginning of his reign. Jesus is reigning now, but it's going to be a public declaration of his reign. Number three is this. Christ's return reunites believers together, meaning those who have already died and those who will be alive at the coming of Christ, which, by the way, I have no idea what generation that will be. I'm not even going to wade into that. Um, the word that I want to highlight here is together. That's really, in many ways, the main point that Paul is making here. It's like, no, you're not going to miss out if you've already died. If you're, whether you're alive when this happens, whether you've already died, you're going to be here for this event. That should give us chills. Um, can you imagine what this scene might be like? I don't know, but just for a second, use your imagination a little bit. Imagine seeing people that you love that have already gone on to be with the Lord and you see them again looking more alive than you've ever seen them before. But we're gonna see millions, millions of followers of Christ throughout the ages, most of whom we will not have recognized. But I like to, 
imagine that we're going to start to look around and see people that we recognize. Like, wait, is that Martin Luther? Is that John Wesley? Is that Dr. King? Is that Mother Teresa? I mean, fill in the blank. I mean, you talk about a reunion. This will be a reunion unlike any we have ever seen before. Christ's return reunites believers together. And number four, now this is where I'm about to get a little controversial. Christ's return and our remaining on earth. Now, this is the verse, really, that Darby, the guy I mentioned at the beginning back in the um, 1800s, um, this was really the verse that he, he looked at and he said, well, this obviously means um, believers leaving earth. Like they get taken out of earth, snatched away. Because on a literal reading, that that's, is what it kind of appears to, to say. Um, the problem with that, what I see as a very significant issue with that, is it seems very unlikely that Paul, writing in Greek, in the, in the Greek language, to Greco-Roman audience in the first century would probably not have understood that to mean a, a snatching away, a leaving of planet Earth. And here's the reason why. That phrase that I've highlighted, to meet the Lord in the air. The word that's translated as meet. This word in that time would have been understood as what would happen when a, a dignitary, a, a, maybe a military leader, a, a ruler would come and visit a village, come and visit a city. And as this person, this dignitary, was coming to visit the village, there would be a welcoming party that would go out to meet him. But it wouldn't, they wouldn't stay outside the village to meet him. They would escort him back to the village. Now, this word is used four times in the New Testament. The word that is, um, is I'm not going to try to pronounce it because I'm not very good on my Greek pronunciation, but it's the one that, that is meet. This word is used three other times, twice in Matthew 25. Um, this is the parable of the ten virgins. Remember when Jesus tells the parable of the, the five foolish and the five wise virgins? The context there is also Christ coming back, his return. And he says, the cry goes out to these virgins. The bridegroom is, is coming back. He's coming back to the village for the wedding. Come out and meet him. It's the same word. And so they go out and they meet the bridegroom. Well, they don't stay outside the village to meet the bridegroom. They are welcoming back in for the wedding, in for the ceremony. Then the word is also used again in Acts 28 on Paul um, when he and his companions are on a missionary journey and they're going to Rome and they're coming to Rome and some believers come outside of the, the city to meet them. Well, they don't stay outside Rome. They meet Paul and his companions and then they escort them back to Rome. That's what the word would have meant. And so you plug that back in to our verse. We meet the Lord in the air. It's this idea that I don't know if we're going to literally, you know, go up in the clouds or if it's just kind of like we see Jesus, but we meet him and then we escort him back. So it's this idea that we don't leave planet earth, but Jesus comes back to restore planet earth earth. And I actually love that. I love the view of our planet that this gives, that it's, the world is broken. We sang about it earlier. It's been, it's like our bodies that is under the curse and the fall of sin. But when Jesus comes back, he's not coming back to take us out of it. It's not this escape from earth thing. That's almost more of a kind of a Hollywood um, 
a secular science idea like, well, this, this world's just hopeless and so we got to get out of it. No, it's Jesus is coming back to restore it, to make all things new, as Revelation says. Christ's return and our remaining on earth. So this probably leaves you with tons of questions. Like, well, okay, what exactly does this mean and how is this going to look? If you come up and ask me all those things, I'm probably going to say, I don't know. Um, if we, if we start to press all of these details too far, it kind of makes our minds melt a little bit. Um, I think Paul is likely using some apocalyptic language, meaning there's some symbolism going on here. But the four ideas that he's conveying is Christ's return brings our resurrection. Christ's return is a public declaration of his reign. Christ's return reunites believers. And Christ's return means we escort him back to earth. We remain on earth and see all things made new again. This is your hope. This is your future as followers of Christ. Amen? Amen. And number three, last point is this. Our ultimate encouragement rests on Christ's return. Last verse in chapter 4, 418 says, Therefore... Argue over the details of this and find ways to divide in the body of Christ. No, that's, that is what we've tended to do over the last 2,000 years. But that's not what Paul says. Interestingly, he says, therefore, encourage or comfort one another with these words. The, the doctrine of Christ coming back is not just something we tap on to the end of like our belief system, our statement of faith. No, this is, this is how we encourage one another. This is how we strengthen one another in the Lord. Christ is coming back. And whether you're alive or dead at the time, you're going to get to be part of it. You're going to be part of the welcoming committee for him coming back. And this is where I think we see the crux of how we have stable faith in uncertain times. Because if the ultimate place for your encouragement and your hope rests on Christ's return, the fact that Jesus is physically coming back, then you're not going to be overly elated and excited or overly deflated and discouraged at what goes on around you, at circumstances in your life, at circumstances of what you see around you. So let's say that things are not going well, circumstances in your life, or maybe you look out across our land and you see things that depress you. Well, if, if your hope is ultimately in Christ coming back, you're going to say, yes, that this, is, this, is, this is hard right now. But my hope is not in these things turning. My hope is in the fact that Jesus is coming back. Or let's say things are going really well in your life, or you're encouraged at things you see around you. You say, thank you, Lord. I see you moving. I see you working. But my hope is not in that. My hope is in the fact that Jesus is coming back. That is where I go for encouragement. I'm going to read a quote here and then have a, a closing thought. Um, I think this quote does a pretty good job of kind of summing up the theme of what I think Paul is conveying and what I hope to convey this morning. But I do want to offer one caveat to this quote and kind of my, my closing thought. This is from a, a theologian named Michael Horton. He says this, the next big thing in God's timetable is the return of Christ. The next big thing is not another Pentecost or another apostle or another political or social cause. It is Christ's return. In demanding an immediate satisfaction of our heart's longing 
we replace this event, Christ's return, with manufactured spectacles. Ironically, though, the most faithful Christian life, there's that word faithful, the most faithful Christian life is one that embraces a pilgrimage rather than a conquest. The ordinary life, sustainable discipleship and disciple-making is the order of the day as we live each moment in eager expectation of the next big thing on God's schedule. And I would, I would say, for the most part, amen. However, I would say this too. I think there is absolutely a biblical, healthy place for desiring and praying for revival here and now. As we look for Christ's return, we can hunger for and pray for revival now. I'm gonna ask uh, Craig and the team to come up here. Um, I am currently taking a, an online class on the, the history of the Great Awakenings in, in our land, in, in North America. So first Great Awakening was 1730s and 40s, so think before the American Revolution, um, before we became a country, um, there was this outpouring of God's Spirit in, in the New England colonies. And then the Second Great Awakening was early 1800s, and I'm, I'm loving this class. I'm kind of a, a little bit of a history nerd, but I'm kind of geeking out. There's just so much going on. Um, but there's been really, for me personally, as I've been studying these, this really more the first great awakening, uh, two takeaways for me, just kind of personally, on how I think about revival. And I wanted to, to share them just to close today because I think they fit um, with talking about the return of Christ. First is this. I want revival. There's something about reading these firsthand accounts of people who lived through this outpouring of God's spirit where unbelievers were having profound encounters with the holiness of God and just crying out, like falling down and crying out, I need Christ, I need Christ. There's one story of um, a, a guy who, who was not a believer who's just kind of passing through a, a meeting that George Whitfield, the evangelist George Whitfield, who was one of the main preachers of the First Great Awakening. And this guy is just kind of passing through, and he's, he's a musician, and he sees this meeting, and he, he actually goes in to disrupt the meeting, um, to just cause a, a distraction. And he has a, I think it's a trumpet, actually. Um, and he's like, I'm going to go in, I'm just going to blow this horn in the middle of this meeting and just, you know, create some chaos, and it'll be funny. He walks into the meeting, walks in the back, and right as he walks in, Whitfield is saying at that very moment, he looks at this guy that walks in, and he says, Israel, prepare to meet your God. And as he says it, the power of God knocks this guy over. He falls down and is just like out for a while. And later he gets revived and he ends up getting saved. And uh, I mean, so amazing. And then, but then, so unbelievers having these profound encounters with the holiness of God. But then believers, people that already knew God, having these profound encounters with the love of God. Sarah Edwards, the wife of, of Jonathan Edwards, um, would have these incredible encounters with the love of God where she would just be too physically weak to even stand up. She was just so overcome with the love of God. And so I, I read that, I'm like, I want that. I want that in her family. I want us to be found faithful as a people of God, that we can faithfully shepherd and steward the outpouring of God's spirit here in this place. Like, do it again, Lord. 
At the same time, my second takeaway from this class is as much as I want revival, it gives me a more sobered view of revival, of what revival can and doesn't do. Because the tragic thing is that these great awakenings did tragically little to address and shift the great societal sins of the land at the time, which was slavery, race-based slavery. Really had no effect on that at all. Um, in fact, some of the, the most prominent leaders in these revivals were ones who defended and even spread this thing, this awful thing of, of slavery. And I say that because I think the tendency can be for us today to look around at you know, the mess around us in our society and say, well, we just, we just need revival, and it'll come, and it, it'll fix everything. If we can just have revival. Historically, that hasn't really been the case. Revival is awesome, and we should want it. We should pray for it. It's our duty to, to hunger for it and pray for it. That's the means that God uses. We can't force God's hand, but he works through our prayer for it. But if we're looking for all things to be made new and fixed, that is not revival. That is the return of Christ. And so we can pray for revival. What we look for, our hope, is in the return of Christ. Amen? Amen. All right, so let's finish with a short confession, and then the team is going to lead us in a closing song. Please stand up. This confession is just going to come straight from the closing chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22. And so um, say this with, with energy and passion. I'm going to read the part under leader. You guys read the part under everyone. And then I'm going to get off the stage and Craig and the team is going to lead us in a closing worship song. The spirit and the bride say, and let the one who hears say, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come Lord Jesus.